Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Russell Moore, in his book Onward, he calls that we should make Christianity strange again. You've heard, make America great again. He's on the board. Make Christianity strange again. It begs the question for us this morning, is your life, your Christian faith, does it seem strange to those around you? Is your Christianity, the way you live your life, the way you carry out your faith, does it call others to reckon with the Lordship of Jesus Christ? See, at the same time as Russell Moore is making this statement, I, I read an uh, article in 2019, May of 2019, and the title was something along the lines of how persecution is increasing around the world. That right now, Christians are being more persecuted than any other time in, her, in history. And so we have a juxtaposition, right? We have uh, New York Times bestsellers that are written by Christian authors here in the United States. But abroad in the world, we have brothers and sisters being put to death, being put on trial, being raped, being beaten, being thrown in prison because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And how do we bring those two realities together? How do we talk about persecution in a country that guarantees our religious freedoms? In a country that has a kind of maybe not Christian, uh, a Christian ethos right now, but has a Christian history to it? How do we speak about persecution in our current context in the United States? I'll be honest, I struggle with this. I remember once when I was in high school, a friend approached me and he was talking about how he had been persecuted the night before. I said, really? And he said, well, yeah, we were at Bible study and the cop came to our house and they made us move all of our cars from one side of the street to the other. And that was persecution. I said, no, that's just breaking traffic laws, right? What is persecution? Right now, we have churches that are being shut down for various purposes. Uh, We've seen this in the last year, churches that are forbidden to meet. Is that persecution? How do we understand it? I think Peter wants to invite us into a discussion about how to suffer well at the hands of unbelieving people. And so as we dig into 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, our suffering reveals our true hope. What Peter's going to lay out for us in these verses, first few verses in verses 12 through 16 is that Christians should anticipate suffering. You and I shouldn't be surprised at the suffering that we face. But secondly, in verses 17 through 18, the ungodly should anticipate judgment. And so what we see is that our suffering reveals our true hope. Either we have true hope right now that pushes us to persecution and suffering through that, or we have a different hope that allows us to live at peace now, but later in judgment. Let's dig in this morning in chapter, chapter 4, 1 Peter, verses 12 through 16. First, we're going to see that Christians should anticipate suffering. Look at verse, verse 12 that Ryan's read for us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's just take a moment to kind of just unpack some of the observations of what Peter's telling us here. See, the first thing that stands out is in verses 12 through 14, Peter says that persecution comes because of our connection to God himself. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. See, we suffer because we share Christ's suffering. So in verse 14, we suffer because the Spirit of God rests on us, right? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What's the cause of our sufferings? What's the cause of our persecution? It's the visible, tangible presence of God with us. You might remember back to when we were studying the story of Joseph, and uh, the author of Genesis just marks how God was present with Joseph, and yet Joseph uh, consistently experienced rejection. Even though God was evidently with him, he was consistently experiencing rejection. See, either way, we suffer because of the new life we have in Christ. And it was just back in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Peter chapter 4 that Peter told us that the unbelieving are surprised that we don't join with them in their debauchery. In fact, Peter used the same word in verse 12. He, he says, the unbelievers surprised when we don't join with them in their carousing, their debauchery. We shouldn't be surprised when we receive persecution in return. And so our life of intentional holiness stands in contrast to the self-destructive tendency of the unbelieving around us. See, Peter's telling us with no uncertain terms that persecution is to be expected. Persecution isn't strange, it's natural. It's the result of the sinful heart's exposure to righteousness. I don't know where I read this, but I just remember reading it. They talked about, uh, there was a quotation from a, a secular source in the first century Rome. And they talked about how these Christians would be the people that would take into their homes the orphaned child that they would take into their homes and care for the widowed wife. And that was so unique amongst the Christian community in Rome that it stood out to this historian. See, this stands in contrast to the world around us. I had a discussion when we were in South Carolina uh, this last week with a man who's highly involved in the foster care process. And he said, he, he made the statement to me, he goes, I mean, there are some people outside of the Christian community that are doing foster care adoption, but overwhelmingly the people who are doing foster care and adoption in their homes are from Christian churches, are strong believers in Jesus Christ. See, we suffer because of our righteousness. We, we show forth the priority of the gospel. We show forth the priority of God's kingdom, and it stands in contrast to those around us. So the first observation is that suffering is to be expected. In verses 15 through 16, he turns a, a corner a little bit, and he says this, that suffering because of Christ gives opportunity for us to glorify God. 
right? Peter warns us not to suffer because of our own sin. Let not anyone suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, right? It's funny how we have like murderer and meddler, right? Like someone who kills people and somebody else who's like a busybody getting involved in somebody else's affairs, a gossip, if you will, right? Peter puts those on the same plane. You might be wondering uh, about that particular situation. Why are these things listed here? We can only assume that these are things that are near to Peter's heart. They're murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler. Why why does he list these things? Well, they're the the acts of righteousness that we put on. We don't participate in these kinds of ordeals. See, while we might rejoice in persecution, Peter now warns us not to cause our own suffering by sinning. Right? You, can, you can suffer because you uh, are being persecuted for righteousness, but Peter's warning us not to cause our own suffering through our own sinfulness. Right? You ever meet somebody that just, they, they just cause their own heartache? Maybe you have a member of your family that way who's at dinner and he's always saying the wrong thing to the wrong person, causing some kind of controversy. Right? We have those things. We, we ourselves do them. We cause our own heartache, our own pain. And what Peter is calling us to here is a righteousness in living that actually brings conviction to those around us. And verse 16, again, turns back to suffering as a Christian. Look at what he says. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, if we are bearing the name Christian, we don't need to be ashamed because of our righteous suffering. Instead, we can glorify God as we suffer well in that name of Christ. You understand where the name Christian came from, right? It's that term that means little Christs. It, it's those that would follow the example and the way and teaching of Jesus. And so if we're na- bearing the name Christian, we should look like Jesus. We should act like Christ. See, overwhelming what, what this passage shows us is that the Christian has present hardship, but a glorious future. Notice something that's happening in these verses. I want to highlight this, and uh, there's a movement of, of glory here. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, but you are blessed because of the spirit of what? Of glory. And then in verse 16, we see this, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, it's as if Peter wants to lift our eyes out of the current sufferings that we're in, and he wants to remind us of the glory of Christ. See, what he's saying, he's saying, hey, listen, you are a um, you are filled with the spirit of glory. You're waiting for the glory of Christ to be revealed in the future. So right now in the present, glorify God in the midst of your sufferings. It's as if Peter wants to lift us up by the chin. He wants to point our eyes to the resurrected, glorified Christ who will come back and return in power. Reminded that Jesus himself went through suffering and came to glory. That's the, the passage in, in Philippians 2 highlights it so clearly, right? That, that Jesus himself humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant, even to the point of death. And then he was exalted by God himself and given the name above every name. That, that's his name. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, Peter says that we share these sufferings in verse 13. 
See, you and I, if we're in Christ, we participate in a cross-to-crown dynamic. We live in subjugated, subjugated uh, righteous, intentional, holy living right now in hope of future reward. And it's not the way by which we earn our righteousness that we get into heaven. It's because God has pronounced us righteous before his throne that we try to live in accordance. See, we are now in the cross stage, right? We await that time when God would exalt us in Christ. Peter's reminding us of that here this morning. He doesn't just remind us that uh, we should anticipate suffering. He reminds us also that those who cause our suffering will also face judgment. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? All this talk of judgment. What are we talking about here? See, right now, you and I, if we're in Christ, we're being judged by the unbelieving. Or at least as Peter was writing to this audience, he's saying you were being judged. Peter tells them it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And he might stop and say, wait a minute, uh, how is it that I'm facing judgment? If I'm in Christ, Romans 8 tells me there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's the deal with this judgment that's happening here according to Peter? Well, this judgment is not coming from God. This judgment is coming from unbelieving people. In fact, that's what Peter is highlighting. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? See, here we are not being judged by God, but by men. In fact, uh, this falls neatly in line with what the insults and persecution that we just saw described in verses 12 through 16. In fact, this is the best way to understand what Peter's talking about in verse 18 when he says we're scarcely being saved. Well, that means that Presently, we feel the weight of our circumstances. We feel uh, the insults of our coworkers when they sense that we're a person of faith. We sense the, uh, the alienation from our neighbors and friends because of the gospel. See, Peter's quoting here in this section of verse 18, albeit loosely from Proverbs 11. And he's highlighting the idea that we are currently being delivered from the hands of persecutors. And so he's saying that we are being judged in the world right now. But he goes on in verse 18 and in verse 17, he kind of gives the same idea in the second half of verse 17 and in the second half of verse 18. He says, uh, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then again in verse 18, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? See, Peter repeats this thought twice. He's highlighting this. And the thought is this, if we're being delivered by God from the ungodly, uh, what will happen to the ungodly when they're judged by God? Sometime down in the future, when the Lord Jesus returns, he sets up his judgment seat and he judges the unrighteous. What is going to happen to them? And there's a part of this that's kind of tricky for us as Christians because there, there's something in us that kind of sickly wants to delight in this judgment of the unbeliever. But that's not what Peter's trying to tell us here. We are to realize that this judgment is coming. The persecuted Christians need to know that there is a God who will stand for righteousness. And someday he will fully and finally vindicate his name through judgment. And Peter is reminding these elect exiles that this persecution, this hardship isn't going to last 
forever. That God sees their difficulty and their plight. See, if Christians were those who have a hard present but a glorious future, what Peter is describing for us here is those who have a pleasant present but a difficult future. There's a coming judgment for the ungodly. Peter's just told us that uh, the wicked will give account to him who judges the living and the dead. Every soul that has ever lived will stand before God's righteous throne and give an account for his or her life. Now, what we just said sticks like a, uh, it sticks in our throat when we say it in our culture, doesn't it? We, we just get uncomfortable talking about judgment. Uh, we just don't like talking about this. Stott says that God's judgment is the affirmation of human dignity. Look at uh, Stott's quote here. Our responsibility before God is an inalienable aspect of our human dignity. Its final expression will be on the day of judgment. Nobody will be sentenced without trial. All people, great and small, irrespective of social class, will stand before God's throne, not crushed or browbeaten, but given this final token of respect for human responsibility as each gives an account of what he or she has done. See, Peter tells us that God is delaying his judgment as he waits for the full number of his elect to repent. He'll say that in 2 Peter chapter 3. Paul reminds us that vengeance belongs to God, that uh, he will repay, that we don't need to go out of our way to repay those who mistreat us and and, uh, uh, speak about us. We don't need to repay evil for evil. See, when we really stop and consider the claims of Christianity, judgment is bound up into the fabric of what we believe. We believe that there is responsibility for humanity. There's, there's a judgment that's coming to those who do wrong, those who violate God's purpose. We believe that we ourselves have avoided judgment through God's grace in Christ. See, we inherently know that God will bring justice on the earth, that the wrongs done to us will be set right. I sat this week and I watched two of my children play in the pool. And what happens invariably is they start playing and they're laughing and having fun. And then eventually someone starts crying. Like someone crosses a line and a wrong is performed. And that child will look back at me and say, are you going to do anything about this? Like, where's your sense of justice? And I get tired of bringing justice all the time, right? We've all experienced that as parents. But as, as God, we look to God as those violate, who violate us, who do wrong to us. We look to God for judgment. We look to God to bring rights to a wrong situation. He persecuted Christians. Take heart that God sees and has intended purpose in their, in their suffering. This is what Peter goes on to next in verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. A few observations here. First, we suffer according to God's will. Isn't that what he says? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, that your suffering is caused in some sense by a righteous and holy God in heaven, Our suffering isn't haphazard or without purpose. The difficulties we face aren't just some kind of meaningless cause of the universe that God uh, was silent toward or, or ignorant of. 
See, our world today tells us that all suffering is to be avoided. But under Peter's teaching, our persecution from others is the will of God. It's by design. God has put his spirit inside of us. He's raised this new, new life in Christ. He's brought about our righteous actions so that we stand in contrast to those ungodly people around us and we kind of bear the brunt of that persecution, right? God caused, or we suffer according to God's will. Second, we should trust a faithful creator amidst our suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. We are not to take matters into our own hands. We're not to repay evil with evil. We're not to act in accordance with the way we are treated. Instead, Peter says that we handle our persecution by turning our attention Godward. That word entrust, it means to deposit, like we're, we're actually giving God and trusting our souls to him. We follow Peter's logic here. God is the creator, and it's by his will that we suffer. Therefore, it makes sense for us to trust him. That word, uh, you know, it, it encapsulates all of what we are so that we hand over the totality of ourselves to a God who has a design in our suffering. And finally, in the last part of the verse, in verse 19, he says that uh, we should entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We should seek to do good amidst our suffering. This has been Peter's call all along. If you've been following with us in the book of 1 Peter, we've seen this through every chapter. It was in 1 Peter chapter 1 that he called us to be holy as God is holy. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he told us to keep our conduct pure amongst the Gentiles. And here in chapter 4, he said that we weren't like those who, who participated in debauchery. He's time and time again calling attention to conduct as a means that we can exemplify the glories of Jesus Christ. As those born again to a living hope, as, as Peter opened his letter with those words, we seek out the things that are pleasing to God. We recognize that our conduct is in some way keeping with our new life that Jesus has given us, right? So what's Peter saying here in verses 12 through 19? He's saying that those who are born again should anticipate persecution, that those who aren't born again should anticipate judgment. And when we face persecution, we can trust the God who willed it. You might step away and say, that's all fine and good, Jason. Um, this is a great understanding of the passage, but really I don't feel like I'm the one who's experiencing any persecution, and I don't feel like this has any kind of tangible benefit to my life. Tomorrow morning I will get up, it will be a Monday morning, and I hate Mondays. And therefore, what does this have to do with my Monday morning tomorrow? So we recognize that we rejoice in persecution because it confirms our calling. Isn't that what Peter's saying here? Look at what he says in verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is kind of a litmus test, right? It's a, a way by which we assess whether God is at work in us. It's the nature by which we're persecuted. Now, let's, let's talk about that for just a second. Because like we opened up this morning, it's kind of hard for us to ascertain whether we're actually being persecuted. 
And we have to ask a question is, is the hardship that I go through, is it because of the name of Jesus Christ and my bold proclamation of it? Or is it just because I'm a jerk? (laughs) You ever do that? Have I done something that just ticks people off? Is my suffering wrought because of something I've said about the glories of God in the gospel? Is it an overreaction on the heart of someone else to the message that I've proclaimed, that I've been called to proclaim in Christ? See, we rejoice in persecution because it confirms our calling. And some of us here, we might not be experiencing persecution because maybe we're not being bold with the gospel. I'll be honest, I I had to assess myself this last few days about this situation. Am I bold in the gospel? Am I calling people to a repentance, to life in Jesus Christ uh, that would put them at odds with me? Am I allowing the offense of the gospel to be the thing that offends and nothing else? It's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? We have so many opinions about everything in this world politics, sports teams, weather, whatever else. If you have opinions about the weather, I don't know what to make of you. We have so many opinions that aren't gospel-laden, aren't gospel-rooted, and we have so many causes for, for division with others around us. And we have to be content to know only Christ and Him crucified and to let the aroma that smells like death to some and smells like life to others be the dividing line with people. You know, as I look at the Apostle Paul's ministry so often, uh, as I've been thinking about this over the last week, most of his division came with religious people. You ever notice that? His division didn't come with uh, the blatant secularist, the party goer, the, the frat boy. I don't know if they had frat boys in the first century, but you follow me. His division came with Jews. His division came with those who worshipped Artemis in Ephesus. His division came with with people who worshipped false gods. His division came with people who wanted to cling to the law. His division came with religious people. We might think that our persecution would come from those outside the body of Christ, but sometimes it might come from those within the body of Christ. Sometimes the strongest words we need to speak in preservation of the gospel are to the people in our own small group. Sometimes the strongest words we need to speak for the preservation of the gospel are for churchgoers and church attenders. You ever wonder why there's so many congregations around Troy, Ohio? It's because religious people have the most conflict because they worship essentially different things sometimes. See, we rejoice in persecution because it confirms our calling and reminds us of the trajectory of Christ. We've already hit on this a little bit. As we look at verse 13, as we kind of dig into what Peter's saying, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. If you recognize this, that we share in Jesus' sufferings. If you're someone who calls yourself a Christian, if you claim faith in Jesus Christ, we, we recognize that we should be sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Are we mistreated because of our faith in the gospel? Are we slandered? Are we maligned? Are we ostracized and alienated? Do we bear the reproach of others because 
We've called to them through the hope in Jesus Christ. Maybe we're mocked because of our pursuit of purity or because of our righteous living. Well, we, re- we recognize this morning that Jesus was first mistreated before we ever were, right? If you and I are mistreated because of the gospel, Jesus went there first. See, any persecution we face is ultimately not about us. Jesus told us this in John 15. He's speaking his last words to his disciples before he's crucified and resurrected. And he said in John 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In fact, all of this hatred really has nothing to do with you. It's fundamentally a rejection of Jesus that has been ongoing for some 2,000 years. Some time ago in my reading, I came across this picture. This picture, uh, go ahead and pull it up on the screen. This picture dates back to the 2nd century A.D. And the Greek writing underneath says, Alexander worships his God. And if you're having trouble making out what's going on here, you can see the human-looking figure with the donkey head is supposed to be on a cross. And Alexander is the one who's raising his hand of worship to this supposed Jesus. Obviously mocking crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. This is from 2nd century A.D. This is the first uh, depiction that we know of, of of the scenes of the cross, and it's made in mocking jest of Jesus Christ. Persecution's nothing new. See, the message of the cross has always been foolishness to those who are perishing, See, Jesus' righteousness has shown so brightly so as to expose the sinful hearts of all humanity that then when you act out in the righteousness, as you're motivated by the Spirit in you, as you're living out that resurrected life in Christ and others are rejecting that and, and pushing that away from them, it's not you they're rejecting. It's the shining righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, we share his sufferings, but he goes on in verse B that he, or 13, in verse, the second half of that, he says that we also share in his glory, right? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, when Jesus returns in glory, your suffering will be worth it. All the persecution, all the insults, all the alienation, all of the difficulty with those that you see, that you've shared the gospel with, will be worth it, won't it? Paul says it. He says, I consider that the present sufferings of this time won't be worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And all of this is going to just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And at the end of our life, we're going to look back at all of this suffering. We're going to say, that was totally worth it. It was totally worth it. It was totally worth those hard words that I was so nervous to say. It was totally worth speaking up for the sake of the gospel. It was totally worth calling this other person out of their sinfulness so that I could see the glory of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Paul says it. He says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You believe that? 
And sometimes it's so hard to keep perspective on that, isn't it? It's so hard for us to keep our eyes focused on that, that all of the stuff that we go through in this life, all the, 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 the trudging through day by day, it culminates to this idea that Jesus would return that he would pull us into his presence forever, that he would strip away all of our sinfulness, all of our humanity, and that he would give us a glorified body like himself. We would be with him forever. See, suffering exposes us, doesn't it? Suffering exposes us for what we are. It exposes our true faith. There's been so many examples recently of those who have left the faith, and we wonder if they ever really were a part of it, but we see this play out in these kind of large-scale ways. There's Christian musicians who've left the faith, and bloggers, and writers, and pastors even. We recognize that our suffering exposes us. It exposes the true nature of our faith. See, it stands out to me that there's really three responses to us available to us this morning when we encounter suffering. We can avoid suffering. We can over-pursue suffering or we can rejoice in suffering. Let's talk about what it is to avoid suffering. We've already talked about this. Our culture avoids suffering at all costs. I love when, when you see like a weight loss thing, and it's like, no, you don't have to work out, and you don't have to change your diet, but you can lose a lot of weight. And I'm saying, it's simple math, right? Like, what goes in is going to come out somewhere, right? That sounded really crass. That's not what I meant. But we, we avoid all kinds of suffering, we, we, we sh- push away from any kind of difficulty, anything that would be hard, anything that would require us to put on more discipline or, or to buck up underneath something that's difficult. Part of me wonders what, what it would be like if we could bring a Holocaust survivor here and play videos of people describing eight weeks in quarantine. How would a Holocaust survivor respond to our grumbling and complaining about being stuck in our house for eight weeks? We just push off anything that is difficult. And some of that attitude bleeds over to our our faith in Christ. We are those who want gospel blessing, but we want it to be without cost. We want to come after Christ, but not to take up his cross. If Jesus was made perfect through suffering, like Peter's or Hebrews tells us, how do we anticipate a life in Christ that avoids difficulty? So avoiding suffering is not a Christian response. Some of us, we over-pursue suffering. You know, there's an a, a early church father who warned some of these early Christians not to pursue martyrdom. Hey, you know, don't tick people off so that they put you to death just so that you might become this martyr person, right? Sometimes we have the tendency to validate our faith our Christian life by our suffering, by the amount of suffering that we go through. But we're really not suffering for the sake of Jesus' name. We're suffering because we're just a jerk. Some of us have just put that badge on. We've just decided that we're going to just run contrary to the world and, and we're just going to tick people off needlessly. So we over-pursue suffering. But what Peter calls us to here is to rejoice in suffering. Isn't that different? See, if God's wills, if he, if he wills that we would suffer, and if our suffering is because of our union with Christ and our life in the Spirit, then we should rejoice in that suffering, shouldn't we? 
We should rejoice in that it confirms the internal reality of our faith. We should say that nothing, no outside circumstance is going to so press me that I'm going to abandon my faith. Isn't that what Peter said earlier on in this chapter, in chapter 4, verse 1? He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What we've seen in, in Peter is not that they've ceased sinning, it's that they no longer are dedicated to that way of life that they've pushed away from that, that they now are living this life of righteousness in Christ. The best way I can hope to illustrate is to to close with a story from Acts chapter 5. See, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles have been uh, clearly warned by the Sanhedrin, by the religious rulers and authorities of the day, that they shouldn't go out and preach. And in Acts chapter 5, they're doing it so in an especially fruitful way. And even as Peter walks across people who are sick or in need, his shadow cast upon them is, is actually bringing healing to those people that are there. And so they're experiencing this vibrant, fruitful ministry. And what happens then is that this, the members of the Sanhedrin become jealous, so they take all of the apostles and they throw them in prison. And after some deliberation, they decide that they're going to let these apostles out of prison. We pick up in chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. After all of this, they, they beat them. I don't know what that looked like, but I can't imagine it was much fun. They charged them not to speak anymore about who Jesus Christ was. And they let them go. They thought that would be sufficient. They thought, hey, some bruises and some beatings, some open wounds, that will teach them. That will teach them no longer to speak about the lordship of Jesus Christ. That will shut their mouths. Listen to what the very next verse says. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoice because they received a beating. Do the math on that one for me, right? I'm so happy because I just got beaten for Christ. I, I'm so honored because my, my, my body shows the wounds of my faith. It's a different math altogether, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense in this world for us to say, I rejoice in beatings for Christ. I rejoice for sufferings for Christ. I rejoice in the hardships I endure because of Christ, because I am counted worthy by God to bear the dishonor and reproach of his name. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, are you counting it honor to bear the reproach of Jesus' name. I want to pray that we might be those people. I want to pray that we would have such deep roots in our faith that we would bear the fruit of, of the gospel in so many places, that we would be people of love and joy and peace and faithfulness and all of those things in Galatians 5, even in amidst a, a difficult and cruel world. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask now that you would make us those types of believers Help us to be those who, who rejoice in our suffering because we recognize that's a, a participation, a sharing in your son's sufferings. It's, it's the true mark that your spirit is upon us and active in us. 
us. Lord, allow us to live a life that is yielded to you in every sense of the word. A life that honors you in as much as we can. Lord, allow us to glorify your name as we live out our faith despite the circumstances around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.